In this lecture on culture, perception, and cognition, we'll look at some of the ways in which culture influences some of the fundamental capacities of the human organism. We'll start off with looking at an overall information hierarchy within which humans operate and look at how socialization and enculturation processes affect some of the fundamental ways in which information comes into the human body and is processed for awareness. We'll look at perception in the context of the question, is perception something natural, given? Is looking at the world like taking a photograph? Or is perception constructed, created, through a variety of experiences that humans have? We'll see that there are a variety of ways in which culture influences our fundamental perceptual experiences. We'll also look at the relationship between culture and cognitive development. The child psychologist Jean Piaget has provided a model in which he outlines what he thinks are the universal stages of cognitive development. Yet cross-cultural research shows that not everybody proceeds along these developmental sequences at the same rates. Is this really a developmental lag or does it reflect something fundamental about what kinds of cognitive processes that a culture values and prefers? we'll see that there are important cultural differences in preferred ways of thinking, and that these are at part the issue that we see in cross-cultural differences in performances on intelligence tests. So in this context, we will examine how our cultural concepts of intelligence have been elevated to some notion of a universal measure of intelligence and see why that really doesn't hold water. And we'll look in particular at the idea of race and IQ. It's clear that in the United States, people of African descent do worse than average in IQ tests. People of Japanese descent do better than average. Is this something that reflects genetics, or can we understand this as also a factor or phenomena produced by cultural and social influences? When we look at humans in the broader context of other animals, we have to recognize that we receive information that reflects a variety of different influences. To begin with, we function within a species world. What our species can perceive is a limited range of electromagnetic energies. We don't perceive the entire spectrum. We cannot construct the same kind of knowledge of the world, say, that a bat can, who can be sensitive to very different uh, frequencies. We also exist within a personal world. We are individually variable in terms of perceptual acuities and other factors that affect our ability to process information. And furthermore, all of these developments occur within a cultural world that creates different kinds of priorities for certain kinds of information. For instance, in our society, we're not taught to pay close attention to sounds in nature or to pay close attention to our internal bodily sensations. We may be capable of perceiving certain things, but our culture doesn't lead us to focus on them. So when we look at an information hierarchy of sensations, perceptions, and cognition, we'll see that these cultural factors play an important role in terms of how our basic sensory apparatus uh, creates a hierarchical information system. Uh, we may have the same basic sense organs with very little variation between them, but how our sense organs function is in part due to how they are shaped by learning experiences and habituation. Indeed, one of the things that we know about our senses is that they tend to habituate. Information that is constant and chronic in the environment very quickly gets shunted out of awareness. We don't even develop a conscious awareness of those sensations anymore. 
color universals, which we will look at in various points of the course, exemplify this notion that while we may have a constant set of sensory apparatus, the way in which we develop a sensitivity to that information is strongly influenced by culture. We'll see that there are universals in the development of color terminology, but how far along that sequence of language development a culture goes is in part due to technological factors that influence the importance of making color distinctions. We distinguish sensations from perceptions by seeing perceptions as being sensations that have meaning, things that we pay attention to because they cue us into what's important in our life. At the level of perceptions, culture plays a very important role in determining what kinds of things we will orient to, what kinds of things we're going to want to pay attention to. And at the level of cognition, how we process perceptions to extract meaning from them, we'll see that there are very powerful influences that come from our worldview. For instance, if your worldview is dominated by the idea that there are spirits present in everyday life, flashes of light, shadows that move, uh, various forms of entoptic phenomena and other kinds of visual phenomena may be readily interpreted as presence of spirit entities. Whereas if we have a materialist worldview, we will seek biological explanations and the perhaps aberrant functioning of our visual systems and things like this. When we look at the way in which culture and socialization interfaces with our sensations, perceptions, and the cognitions that result, we've come to a recognition that our perceptions of reality aren't reality. We as humans are only capable of processing a very narrow band of the information that we know is out there. So in a very important way, we have to recognize that whatever is reality out there, the operational environment, what is truly the case about the physical world, is in some fundamental ways always beyond the availability of the human senses. Instead, what we experience about the world is a cognized environment, an environment that we have come to perceive because our culture has led us to understand the world in a certain way. And this is what anthropologists mean when they say that our understanding of reality is a cultural construction. We have come to perceive the world, experience sensations, and think about it in certain ways because of how our culture has influenced us. Now, this notion of our perceptions as constructed is not what people typically think. Most people are what we would call naive empiricists. You see what's out there. When you see something, it's because it's there. In contrast to that is a variety of forms of evidence that substantiates the constructivist view, that we learn to perceive the world. For instance, people who have been congenitally blind, blind since birth, who later in their life have their vision restored or provided for them through surgery, typically experience a long period in which they learn to use their eyes. Indeed, for people who are first recovering from this kind of surgery, Using their eyes is just too confusing. They can't even navigate through a room with their eyes open. To make sense of their world, they have to close their eyes and resort to their own habits of using sound and feelings for things to find their way through the room. It takes a while before you can use your eyes. Uh, and we know that our eyes do very complex kinds of manipulations. For instance, uh, some of the Gestalt studies have taken human subjects and put goggles on them that invert the visual field. 
these studies were in part motivated by what the biological sciences says, namely that our eyes see upside down. Your eyes basically project an image upside down on the back on your retina. Well, how do we see right side up? Well, the brain must have the ability to flip that upside down image over. Well, these goggle studies show just that. Make someone wear a pair of goggles that inverts their visual field. And for about a week or so, they'll have a great difficulty in navigating through the environment because everything's upside down. But after about a week, all of a sudden, things flip back over for them. And even though the goggles are turning everything upside down, the world seems right side up. Wear the goggles a few more days and take them off. Now your world's upside down again, and it takes your brain a little bit of time to flip things back over. So lots of different kinds of gestalt studies illustrate that we have this capacity to radically transform the information that we get from the environment to make sense of in a certain kind of way. These studies also show that we're highly susceptible to certain kinds of illusions, and furthermore, that that susceptibility to illusions is in part determined by cultural experiences. For instance, one of the classic studies has you compare lines A and B. Which one is longer? Well, over here on the left, you probably say, well, B is a little bit longer. And on the right, you're going to say, ah, you screwed up. You didn't draw those lines right. Or you say, well, it's probably the projective system. But, you know, get a ruler, go measure. Print out the overheads, measure them. Those lines A and B are the same length, although we, as members of people who live in constructed cultures, are particularly susceptible to these kinds of illusions. People who live in carpentered worlds, where we're accustomed to having right angles, begin to see the world in a particular way that makes them highly susceptible to visual illusions. So how is it that culture affects our perception? Well, to begin with, we have to recognize the idea that somehow we just see what's out there is naive. But given the cross-cultural differences in susceptibility to illusions, we have to look to the factors that affect this kind of susceptibility. People who live in round houses are not very susceptible to these and other kinds of visual illusions based upon right angles. So there's a variety of ways in which culture has been shown to affect what's been called perceptual style or cognitive style, a kind of intermediate form of understanding the world. And one of the underlying features of this distinction contrasts what is called an abstract or field-independent cognitive style from a concrete or field-dependent one. People who think abstractly are able to analyze and isolate limited features of a situation, extract something very small from the overall picture. You can see the tree in spite of the forest. People who are field-dependent are sort of caught up in the forest and can't see the trees. They're embodied in the situation in a way that doesn't allow them to clearly distinguish individual factors. This situation is often tested through what's called the embedded figures test. In the embedded figures test, you're given, for instance, the triangle here on the left and asked to find the triangle in this figure on the right. Well, if you take the triangle, rotate it 90 degrees counterclockwise and move it all the way to the right, it will fit in the right-hand side of the complex figure. People who have a field-independent style can easily see this. People who are field-dependent are often too embedded in the complex design to articulate, to see those individual features. There are other procedures that have been used to study this 
uh, abstract versus field-dependent point of view. And it turns out that it's influenced by a variety of factors. For instance, environment. People who grow up in environments where they are required to make very important decisions based upon subtle differentiations. For instance, Eskimos who have to find their way through an environment that's nothing more than you know, ice and snow and ice crags. They're very field independent. If you don't get the ability to articulate out those small features, you're not likely to survive well in that kind of environment. People who engage in hunting are much better than agriculturalists. Agriculturalists don't have to look for the corn. They know where they planted it. But if you're hunting animals, you've got to pick out those figures in you know, very complex camouflaged environments. Studies suggest that even relationships with mothers affect this. Children who are more emotionally independent also end up being more field independent. It may reflect uh, another factor that's well recognized in this area of research, that females tend to be much more field dependent than males. The reason for this is thought to at least in part reflect the greater freedom to explore the environment that males are given. They're actually given more opportunities to go out and find out what these visual features actually mean close up when they touch it. And finally, familiarity with learning uh, the kinds of materials that are used. Uh, many of these kinds of embedded figures tests you may have encountered in the doctor's office where you read a highlights magazine and were asked to find the 15 cats that were hidden in the picture. You are being given training in this kind of field independence. So lots of different factors affect the way in which we end up experiencing the world, and these in general can be seen as socialization experiences. In terms of cognitive development, the most important theoretical framework that has been used in psychology and anthropology is that provided by Jean Piaget. And Piaget has proposed that there are universal features of how humans come to think about the world and to experience it in ways that reflect their ability to act upon and transform information. In Piaget's schema, these are universal features found in all societies. In North America, a relatively narrow framework of variation is found in terms of movement from one stage to the next. Uh, the sensory motor stage that's based upon using the physical body to experience the world dominates for about two years. As children begin to use language, they move into what's called the pre-operational stage in which symbols and abstract thought are then used to perceive reality. Uh, Piaget thought that children went into the next major stage of development, perhaps as early as five years, but normally by seven in which they develop concrete operations. And this is a cognitive style in which things such as permanency and constancy of objects are used to experience the world. For instance, if you look at what we have here on the notepad, one of the ways in which uh, this experience of concrete operations has been studied is in terms of people's ability to perceive different quantities as remaining constant across different circumstances. So for instance, on the notepad, we would have two different glasses, A and B, the same size, same shape, and we'll accept for here that they're representing the same amount of liquid. But what if we take glass B and pour it into the one on the bottom that's narrow and thin? Is the amount in A and the second B the same? Well, if you have this concrete operational thought level, 
you have conservation. It doesn't make any difference what size the vase is, the quantity of water remains the same. But if we look at the second B on the bottom, is there more there? Well, Piaget would say no, but there is more height and there is more exposed surface area. So these kinds of questions about whether or not psychologists from the U.S. can adequately distinguish more volume, more height, and more surface area when speaking a foreign language calls into question the meaning of the findings that come from around the world that suggest that people in other cultures don't develop this kind of constancy. So beyond the concrete operational thought, we then have the formal operations that's based upon the concept of logical reasoning processes. And what we also discover is that around the world, the extent to which people develop formal operations at age 12 is highly variable. Indeed, some studies suggest that in some societies, maybe even the majority of adults don't reach this stage of formal operations. So what's given is that there are cross-cultural differences in the rate of the acquisition of these different kinds of cognitive plateaus. And there's also questions about to what extent can these developments be extended from one kind of material to another. In essence, what we find is that when children go to school, this has a dramatic impact upon cognitive development in terms of Piaget stages. They become familiar with the material, they become familiar with test expectations, and ultimately they may, may become socialized to thinking about the world in certain ways that reflect the biases that are built into these testing systems. And we'll look at this in particular in the contrast between concrete classification and abstract classification. Because abstract classification is one of the principles that is thought to underlie formal operations, and it's one of the principles that people in many cultures don't apparently find to be compelling as a way of thinking about the world. These differences that we find cross-culturally focus attention on the distinction between human capacities, which are universal, part of our biological heritage, and specific skills that are part of a culturally specific way of thinking about the world. And what we will try to do in looking at some specific examples is exemplify how culture may influence the preferences that people have regarding what kind of thinking is the best way to think about the world. To set the stage for this, let's talk a little bit about classification criteria. If I give you a bunch of objects, blocks, you know, geometric figures, um, you know, toys, tools, whatever, and ask you to classify them, to put them in groups in terms of what's most similar, well, there are a variety of ways in which you can make groups. You can put things of the same color together. You can put things of the same size, little ones and big ones together. Or you can use some more abstract criteria based upon categories of the language. In addition to these concrete versus abstract criteria, one of the intermediate steps apparently involves the idea of a functional classification. Things are put together in groups because they function together in certain kinds of ways that make them useful. Keep these in mind as we look at some of these examples. For instance, if I asked you to look at the items in row one and pick out which item is the most different, well, which one are you going to pick? Well, if you pick the red square, 
as the most different? Well, this is a classification based upon abstract criteria, geometric form. However, if you pick this yellow triangle as the most different, you're using a more concrete classification based upon color. Similarly, in row two, if you pick the red triangle as the most different, once again, you used abstract criteria, geometric form. On the other hand, if you were to pick the red circle, you would be picking on size, or the yellow circle, uh, you would also be picking on color. So people who are more schooled tend to use abstract criteria. Here on line three, the most abstract criteria would be to pick the circle as most different, whereas picking the red square would once again be a concrete criteria. Well, it turns out that people in many cultures don't use these abstract criteria. When you ask them, well, you know, why, for instance, did you pick the, uh, you know, one particular item? They may say, well, because I think it looks better that way. Everything shouldn't be the same. We should mix things up a bit. They don't always think that some overarching category like triangles or squares or circles ought to be used to decide what goes in the group. Uh, here's another one. What goes together here? If I throw out all these items, a hat, a banana, a knife, coconuts, pants, a hammer, sandals, a machete, a pineapple, put these together in groups. What does it make sense to group together? What's the smart answer here? Well, there's different ideas about what constitutes the smart answer. Uh, from the point of view of cognitive psychology, the smart answer are these abstract categories clothing, food, and tools. It makes sense to put these together in terms of their being members of specific categories. But in some cultures, people would say, well, you put the hat and the banana and the knife together, the pants, the pineapple, and the machete, the sandals, the coconut, and the hammer. You're thinking, what are you thinking? And they're thinking, I'm being smart. If I want to go get bananas, it's a long walk in the hot sun. I better wear a hat so I don't get sunburn on my head. And you need a knife to cut the bananas. Any dummy knows that. And if you want pineapples, well, the pineapple plants are really prickly and they got all these thorns on the edges of the leaves. Better wear your pants so you don't get cut up and take a machete to cut pineapples because you don't want to stick your hand in there and use a knife and get your wrist all scratched up. You want coconuts? You got to walk down the hot sand on the beach to get to the coconut trees. You better take your sandals, and you'll need a hammer to break open the coconuts. So this functional classification is seen as not being as intelligent as the abstract classification based upon categories such as food and tools and clothing. If you ask people that prefer functional classification, is there another way to do it? Normally they will come up with another functional classification. Well. Maybe you could take the machete to get coconuts. You can cut open a coconut with a machete. Or, well, I suppose you could take the knife to get pineapples, but that's not very smart. They tend to come up with other functional reasons to group things together. Sometimes the cross-cultural psychologists discover if you keep pushing people and pushing them, is there another way? Is there another way? They will eventually provide an abstract classification. Well, I guess you could put the hat and the pants and you know, the sandals together. But why? Why would you want to do that? What sense does it make? So in addition to the basic abilities to think in certain ways, abstractly versus concretely, we also have to consider what cultures prefer. 
And in part, what this reflects is a set of cultural priorities that may be more focused on how do you get things done in life rather than what are these superordinate language classification schemas. In some cases, these issues are also biased by cultural preferences for certain ways of dealing with the world. For instance, let me give you a logical test question here. You may have seen something like this on the ACT or the SAT exams. Um, bears in the north are green. Vladivostok is in the north. What color are the bears in Vladivostok? What's the logical answer here? Well, the logical answer is that they're green. But many cultures, people would say, that's ridiculous. How can you be so stupid? There's no such thing as green bears. That's not the right answer. Or if you tell it to them in the form of, you know, Vladivostok's in the north and bears in the north are white. What color are the bears in Vladivostok? I don't know. I've never been to Vladivostok. You might say, but wait, wait, I've already told you what the problem is. And you repeat it. So what color are the bears? And they go, hey, you may have been to Vladivostok. Maybe you know what the bears look like there. I haven't been to Vladivostok. I don't know if they're white or they're brown or they're green. So in some cultures, people emphasize the importance of reasoning from what they know. They don't consider the logical problem to make much sense if it doesn't relate to their own particular experiences. So this sometimes has led psychologists to conclude that people in other cultures don't think logically. Yet the anthropologists discover that people in these cultures will think logically about things that are part of their experience. So a person may show up before a tribunal and say, you know, uh, Peter has let his pigs run free and they've eaten my rice crop. Well, last year Tom let his pigs run free and he ate that they ate somebody else's rice crop, and you decided that Tom should pay a penalty. Therefore, Peter should pay a penalty. They reason logically with materials that are familiar to them. This issue of what are the cultural standards for reasoning is an important one when we start to think about cultural differences in thought processes. People in some cultures don't think it's important to isolate things from any possible context. They reason from the context rather than from some universal culture-free principles. There's also other reasons why we might find important cross-cultural differences in how people perform on tests. There's a lot of different kinds of social influences and cultural preferences that go into testing. Uh, there's a lot of different effects of the testing processes uh, in terms of our assumptions about the world. Can we, in fact, answer a test question isolated from everything else? Should we? In some cultures, when they try to test the way in which adults think and they get someone who's agreed to take the test, and then the person is showing the test materials and said, okay, you know, solve the problem, he goes, okay, I'll be right back. Well, what's going on? I'll be right back, 10 minutes. And 10 minutes later, he's back with four of his friends. Okay, explain that problem again. What are these guys for? We're going to solve your problem. The guy goes, well, yeah, yeah, we're going to solve the problem. Then the guy, the tester goes, look, I want you to answer the question. He goes, well, I will answer the question, but explain it to my friends so they can help me figure it out. Well, I mean, what kind of idiot tries to deal with an important question all by themselves? Anybody who has any sense knows you call upon your friends. 
Okay, so what's more intelligent here? Doing it by yourself or using the resources that you have available. A lot of times there's a variety of learning opportunities and experience with testing materials. And that people, for instance, who um, are in schools and they're forced to think about triangles and circles and squares and ellipses and octagons, well, they've already thought about these things. They've already been told the categorizations for them. It's easy for them to make these kinds of classifications. Uh, people who haven't had experience with the materials may not even think in terms of geometric form. So sometimes it's just a question of experience, and we'll see in some subsequent examples how important cultural relevance is. Certainly social priorities are important in some cultures. We may be willing to answer questions about whether or not there's green bears in Vladivostok, or the moon's made of cheese, or whether there's a scorpion in the red box in the lower left drawer of the desk, if there's a white box on the right corner of the desk. But most people say, wait, this doesn't have anything to do with my life. Give me a question that has to do with the realities that I deal with. And in essence, schooling entertains that kind of cognition. It gets us to speculate about the unknown. It takes us from the immediate context in which we live and leads us to think of the world in terms of a lot of other possibilities. Is it really changing fundamentally the way we think? Well, some people might suggest that, but another way of looking at it is that Schooling really just expands the domain that we find to be culturally relevant in terms of making distinctions. One of the things that we have to understand about cultural differences in test performance is the issue of ecological validity. Ecological validity basically asks the question, does the test that we're given have any relationship to the kinds of activities that we engage in in everyday life? Is there, in essence, a relationship to our prior experience? And this clearly is borne out when we look at differences in people's ability to provide abstract classification. For instance, take the children of Filipino farmers. Give them geometric figures to classify. And most of them will give you very concrete classifications. Put the red ones and the white ones together in separate piles. Put the big ones and the little ones together in separate piles. They don't seem to have abstract thought in their mind. But give them rice to classify. And what will they do? Well, many of them, even small children, will separate wet rice and dry rice. Some rice can be drawn under dry circumstances. If you ask them to do it again, they'll separate into winter rice and summer rice. Some rice you grow in the summertime, some rice you grow in the winter. These are abstract classifications. They make sense to them because it's part of their everyday life experience, and they will do precisely that. If I give you the geometric figures test now, I'm sure all of you can quickly extract the rule of abstract classification and use abstract principles. It seems that you think in a logical way that reflects the categorization based upon categories of you know, language. But what if I give you a box full of resistors and transistors and capacitors and other electrical components and say, classify these? Well, you know, electrical engineering major, you might give me an abstract classification, resistors, capacitors, transistors. But the rest of you, you put the big ones in one pile, you put the little ones in one pile. If it's red, you put the red ones in one pile. You give me a concrete classification because you're not familiar with the materials. What this suggests is that there may be a limit to the extent to which our cognitive capabilities and the skills that are derived are generalizable to new circumstances. 
the general principle that Piaget has is that once you acquire a particular way of thinking about the world, you'll extend it to others. If you can classify geometric forms, then you'll classify rice abstractly, and you'll classify electrical components. But other studies suggest that this is not the case. It suggests that in a very real way, our skills are highly limited, that they don't generalize to any other particular setting. And this was illustrated in some studies that anthropologist Jean Labe did in Liberia and West Africa. And what she did was to study the way in which tailors and high school students dealt with math problems. She, in essence, took the tailor's problems about, you know, how many garments can you make out of a piece of cloth this big, or how many hats can you make out of this much material, and she turned them into high school math problems that said, you know, if you have this, then this, and this size, etc. And then she took the tailor problems and she formalized them in a way that was particular to how tailors thought about the world. And then she tested the tailors and the students on both the math problems that reflected the tailors' you know, problems and then the tailors' problems as they conceptualized them. From an analytical point of view, it was the same problem, the same algorithm. But the students did great on the high school math formulas of the problems and did very poorly on the everyday problems that the tailors engaged. And the tailors did just the opposite. If you presented the problem to them in the way that they thought about you know, how they made garments, they could do very well in solving the problems. But when they were presented as high school math problems, they didn't do very well. In fact, what was her conclusion is that we don't develop these general cognitive capacities to solve all problems. Whatever our capacities are, we develop very specific skills that are related to the specific kinds of problems that we're familiar with working with. And some studies have suggested that even in our own society, these skills are very delimited, even within professional areas. For instance, if you give problems to doctors and nurses, that relate disease outcomes to exposures. You think the doctors and nurses ought to be able to think logically about this, but it turns out in most cases, if they don't have epidemiological training, they reason very concretely. Oh, well, more people are in this group, therefore it's a cause or it's not a cause. When the real issue has to do with you know, a more complex mathematical relationship among the categories of exposure and outcome. So even in people's domain of professional experience, they might not think logically if they haven't had the opportunity to develop highly specific skills related to those logical questions. This, of course, addresses the broader issue about intelligence. Is intelligence, IQ, a universal principle of human cognitive capabilities, or is intelligence really a cultural concept? Well, it's surprising to me that there's been debate about this for so long because ever since the beginning of using IQ tests, the psychologists have known that there is virtually no correlation whatsoever between your verbal IQ and your quantitative IQ. Only a few percentages of common variation in those two. What the mathematics says is that verbal intelligence and quantitative intelligence don't have anything to do with each other. So why do we think that IQ is a global measure of intelligence? Well, some psychologists, people like uh, Gardner Murphy and others, have postulated that we don't have a single kind of intelligence, but we have a variety of specialized or modularized intelligences. There's not one IQ 
but many. And there's important cross-cultural differences in terms of what is valued. Uh, for instance, in our culture, we often discount what the Japanese refer to as social intelligence. We even have sayings for it, you know, yeah, he's a jerk, but I can work with him. In some cultures, he's a jerk, I don't work with him. Some people think that this interpersonal intelligence is the most important criteria for deciding whether or not they're going to even work with people. And when we look cross-culturally, it's clear that what's intelligence in one culture may have very little relevance in another. For instance, I may tell you that you know this computer programmer has an IQ of 168. He's the smartest person in the room. Do you want to take this guy with you to survive in the Amazon basin for one month? After all, he's the smartest person here. You know, if you're really going to think about it, you may decide that what this guy knows about computers and computer programming is going to be totally irrelevant when you're living in the jungle and that you know, maybe somebody with an IQ of 70 but good survival skills is a much better partner to take with you. So once again, intelligence is a phenomenon that gets manifested in cultural context. Now why are we so inclined to think of intelligence as inherited? Well, in part it's due to a major case of fraud in science that established uh, some thinking about the relationship between heredity and intelligence. The classic data cited for decades was research by an English psychologist who was even knighted, Cyril Burke. It turns out that later it was discovered that he fabricated all his data, uh, his twin studies data. Uh, other studies have been done on the intercorrelation of intelligence among family members, uh, monozygotic and dizygotic, identical and paternal twins, and clearly there is a kind of inherited component to intelligence. One of the big questions is, is that inheritance biological or is it social? Clearly there's about a 30% of the variation in intelligence is a direct reflection of social opportunity. And the intelligence scores of even identical twins, reared in the same household with the same parents, going to the same school, everything virtually identical, their IQs may only be 50 to 80% common in terms of variation. So even when we keep biology and the social environment constant, there's still a major component of variation. So how do we take this understanding of intelligence and place it in the context of what we know in the United States, namely that African Americans score well below means and IQ tests, and the Japanese Americans score well above? Well, we might first put this in the context of other kinds of data. For instance, we know that black children who are adopted into white families have IQs that are about 15% above the average IQ. Does this mean that adopted children are inherently superior cognitively? Or does it mean that you only get to adopt kids if you've got a good middle-class family and educational opportunities for them. If we were to take the IQ differences at face value, we would conclude that most white Southerners are innately inferior on intelligence to adopted black children. And most people would say, well, no, there must be something wrong with that. Of course there is. It doesn't take into consideration the issues of educational opportunity. Places like Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi rank right along with Arizona at the very bottom in terms of per capita expenditures on education. There's just not as good education in some places as in others. 
What do these differences reflect? Well, they reflect the cultural aspects of testing. Some people are more comfortable with testing and may value testing more. In many cases, it's pointed out that uh, African-American school children learn an idea about blackness that says being smart in school is, is being a sellout, it's being white. And so they don't want to perform on tests. They're not motivated to. When we look at tests, clearly there are many kinds of cultural features that are part of the way in which the testing is done. If someone is, for instance, um, chopping wood or fishing, are they working or are they engaged in relaxation? Well, from a middle class point of view, you know, chopping wood is something you might do to get a little exercise and fishing is something you do for fun. If you're a lower class rural southern black, chopping wood and fishing is work. So if a kid has that model and they're asked to make a decision, they may make what, they, what the testers consider to be the wrong answer, not taking into consideration the cultural context of the response. There's certainly important differences in language and reasoning styles that exist from one culture to the next. Uh, one of the issues we'll look at later is how uh, the black English vernacular, black English in the US, may be an impediment in testing situations and circumstances when children not familiar with that particular dialect of English do very poorly on a variety of different tests. But if you look at how they reason in everyday life, abstract thought is expressed through black English just as much as it is through white English. Although black children may not be comfortable talking about issues in front of white teachers, and so they'll come off looking like they're verbally impaired and not very intelligent. Certainly motivation plays a, a, a role in how people perform on tests as do issues about culture and learning styles. Uh, the American school system is very focused on verbal teaching. You tell somebody something, they listen to it, they figure it out, and they do it. Well, many other cultures focus on learning through observation. You want someone to learn how to do something, you show them how to do it, and you show them how to do it until they see how to do it. You don't tell them verbally. So sometimes it has to do with what modality is most comfortable for people in a particular cultural group. Ultimately, it comes down to the question of ecological validity. Do the tests that we use really measure what's important to people in everyday life? Do people engage in those kinds of thought processes in the course of day-to-day -day living? Do people get reinforced for telling you that bears in Vladivostok are green? Or do people laugh at you when you speculate about reality apart from your direct experience in everyday life? So when we look at thought cross-culturally, there are certainly are important differences in terms of what people prefer and how they perform in a variety of tests. What this reflects is not differences in our capacities, and it may not even be differences in our ability to develop skills related to those capacities. It may reflect the fact that the kinds of skills that we develop are very specific to the kinds of activities that we engage in in everyday life. You all can classify geometric figures abstractly because you were taught to do that in school. Even though you can think abstractly, you can't classify rice abstractly because you don't know what different kinds of rice look like in terms of whether it's wet rice or dry rice or winter rice or summer rice. So in important ways, the way in which we come to engage in any kind of cognitive problem is a function of what our culture has led us to value what it's made us familiar with in terms of materials, what it has informed us about in terms of the meaning of those materials. 
children in the Philippines learn what, what one kind of rice is used for versus another kind. We don't learn that. We can't think abstractly about that any more than most of us can abstractly classify electrical components. So in summary, socialization is an essential part of all human skills, including our perceptual experiences and our cognitive experiences. Uh, development of a cultural self within that context focuses us on what's important and what's not. There are a variety of human capacities that may be selected for by culture rather than just reflecting our innate potentials. And ultimately, what's intelligence is ecological. What will get you paid a quarter million dollars working on Wall Street as a financial analyst probably won't give you much advantage if we drop you off in some area where there's no technology other than that which you can make from nature. So even our basic intelligence skills may be highly modularized and reflecting the fact that humans have adapted to diverse environments, not only the physical environment, but social environments and ultimately cognitive ones.